One way to get in touch with the world without leaving home is to visit your local zoo. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Alan Nihu shares tips to some of the best zoos in America. They're coming up with new uh, ways of looking at animals. For instance, a big deal today is underwater hippo viewing. Then, for a peek into a more refined life form, we'll visit the densely populated and resourceful society of the Netherlands. When you think, I was born below the level of the sea, when you tell that to other people, they get scared. That's why my parents told me very quickly to swim. <laughs> Two Dutch friends explain how the neatly ordered social structure of the Netherlands works and why. The sea level is rising, and how quick or how fast it goes, we don't know. So we better start preparing and be built for the future. America's best zoos, and how the Dutch live together, get along, and get ahead. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. The Netherlands, Europe's most densely populated country, is mostly below sea level. And with a rising tide of challenges, the Dutch have no choice but to be resourceful and prepared. Coming up in a bit, we'll look at how Dutch society not only manages, but thrives. First, we'll look at how zoos in America have evolved in recent years and which ones are best and why. Well, you can travel all over the world to see exotic animals, but of course, we've got incredible zoos right here in our own country. And I just learned that more people go to zoos each year than all the professional big sports combined. Baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. Over 150 million Americans go to the zoo each year. Alan Nihus joins us, and Alan's written a guidebook simply called America's Best Zoos, a travel guide for fans and for families. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate being on. Do you buy that, that more Americans go to zoos than all those other sports together? Yes, it's an established fact, and the American Zoological Association uh, promotes it heavily. That really justifies the existence of zoos and, and the money that's put into them. Right, and there's a lot of repeat visits in there. I mean, sure. I go to our local zoo many times a year. When you look at zoos today, you've been writing about zoos since the mid-1990s, and uh, you've had the four kids, right, that you have been your sort of uh, helpers yes. in doing this, because you know what turns on the yes. kids in the zoos. travel companions. How have zoos changed in the last 15 years? Well, what's going on with technology and, and just the style of zoos? Well, they, they're coming up with new uh, ways of looking at animals. For instance, a big deal today is underwater hippo viewing. And the Toledo Zoo is actually the one that started that. The first time any human being ever saw a hippo being born was uh, underwater hippo viewing. The real change started really about 30 years ago when zoos stopped being like stamp collections or what we call menageries. And now they're going into more of barless exhibits trying to emulate uh, what they look like out in nature. Let's go back to this underwater hippo viewing. So you get a mask and snorkels with your admission? No, you got a wonderful uh, wide glass window, and uh, it's like an aquarium. It's like a hippo aquarium. Wow. Yeah, of course, when you go to a great aquariums, you have those tunnels, and now you look up, and you just, you're immersed oh, in that. Oh, I know. And you can do that with hippos now. I read in your book that when it comes to, for instance, hippo viewing, it's best to go in the morning, right? Pretty much, but really hippos, I mean, they'll be underwater pretty much all day, but they will sleep a lot during the middle of the day. So, yes, they're most active either early in the day or late in the day. Okay. So give us some travel tips because a lot of times you, you go to the zoo and it seems like it's siesta time. Yeah, and th th like I said, that's what we do recommend. Uh, if the weather's going to be bad, we recommend uh, putting off the indoor buildings and stuff for when the weather might be bad and, and doing the outdoor stuff when it's nice out. Or if you're going in the middle of summer, if it's hot, do the indoor buildings in the middle of the afternoon. So that's from a human comfort point of view. But what about just from an animal activity point of view? Well, from an animal activity point of view, number one, do not plan on feeding any animals. The days of throwing marshmallows to the bears are over. Hmm. Uh, all these animals are on very strict diets, so you may not... Uh, feed grass to the giraffes or something like that, unless you're paying to do so. They, they have special, you know, feed the giraffes things at many different zoos. Also, don't take a coin out and tap on the rattlesnake window. I want to strangle the kids that do that because they can cause the, the rattlesnakes to have a heart attack. Really? So you, yes. an aficionado of zoos, you, you know the proper etiquette for enjoying the animals. At the it's zoo. just plain manners. That's yeah, all it is. Yeah. You mentioned earlier zoos are going barless. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're uh, hiding the barriers that keep the animals from people. You're looking straight at the animal, perfect pictures uh, as if they're out in nature. They're using moats 
or sometimes uh, for some of the hoofed animals, they'll use like grates in the, in the ground that will keep them in. And it, it's just a wonderful experience to see animals almost as if they're in nature. So you don't feel like you're looking at animals in a prison. That's right. The days of zoos being animal prisons are over, except for some of the smaller and some of the private zoos that are really I don't recommend. You know, I remember when I was a kid, it was like going to a prison where all the animals were locked up behind bars. That is a big change in the last generation. That's right, and that's a misconception that we're trying to change. You mentioned somewhere in your book that there's like a billion dollars being invested in zoos across the country. What are you looking forward to? What's in the works that really is exciting that you can hardly wait to be ready for prime time? Well, I'm looking forward to seeing some of these uh, exhibits that are just opening right now. Down in Los Angeles, they have an elephant's exhibit. That exhibit's gotten a lot of controversy as they've built it, but they've finally got it open. What I really like, Rick, and I'm a lot like you, I like to see other cultures, other places. And this uh, exhibit, you go around the four different spots and you see not only exhibits about the different elephants and a, and a gorgeous elephant exhibit, but also about the different cultures where you can see elephants. You can see elephants in China. You can see elephants in Indonesia. You can see elephants in India. Huh. And there's uh, there's exhibits about the cultures that they're seen in. So is that sort of modern uh, zoo technology or whatever is to present animals in the context of their human cultures? Yes, yes. In fact, right in your backyard there out in the Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo, they have uh, elephant forest, and they present them with a big, gigantic Thai barn like in Thailand, and, yeah. and they also have some exhibits about the Thai culture. For students and families out, it's a, it's a way to travel around the world for the price of an admission to the zoo. Exactly. Uh, some of these African savanna exhibits, I would say it's the, it's the most realistic savanna you can go on without buying a passport. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Alan Nihus, and Alan and his co-author John Vosner write America's Best Zoos, a travel guide for fans and families. Alan, uh, of course, when people talk about zoos, there's the people bring up the uh, politics of it and the animal rights and so on. Do animal lovers come down on one side or the other of this? I mean, is it humane or is it is it controversial? I probably have a biased point of view on that, Rick. Yeah. But uh, I'd say they're they're split. I think most animal lovers recognize what zoos are doing. There are animals out there right now that you'll see that would be extinct already if not for zoos. Uh, the American buffalo or bison. It would be gone if not for zoos. There's something hmm. called the Arabian Oryx, which comes from Jordan and Israel. It would be gone if not wow. for zoos. And there's many others like that. So buffaloes, like the Buffalo Bill buffaloes, those would be actually yes. gone if it wasn't for zoos. They would have been gone uh, 70, 80 years ago. Well, there's a rationale for zoos right there. How, how do zoos do that? Is there a concentrated effort to recognize endangered species and breed them carefully in captivity? That's right. It's, in fact, it's very scientific. They have what's called SSP plans, uh, species survival plans, and they keep careful computerized records of all the genetics, so they're making sure that they're not crossing related animals with each other, so they have very healthy animals, and the zoos will trade animals to uh, make sure that they're getting uh, great uh, offspring. The, the trading of animals must be fascinating. I mean, like, we got a panda, and, and we could use a, a giraffe or, or something like that? It's similar to that, <laughs> Yes. And, and it's, it's for some animals that you never heard of, the Puerto Rican crested toad and things like that. I, I guess different zoos have a different passion to have a, a really excelling selection of rodents or birds or reptiles or what. Do different zoos make a point to have an area that is their forte? Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's what really got me into this whole thing, Rick. We have, I have a nice zoo here in Indianapolis where I'm from and, as I traveled around on business trips for my regular day job, I realized, wow, all these zoos are really different. The zoo in Seattle is very different from the San Diego Zoo, which is a great zoo, or, or the zoo in Omaha or, or the Bronx Zoo in New York. And I just realized they're all different. They all have different specialties. Some are great for children. Some are great for cats. And some are great for uh, having great themed exhibits that take you to Africa or to Australia or something like that. So you just mentioned uh, four great zoos, what, the Bronx, San Diego, Seattle and Omaha. Yes. So how would those four um, zoos, you know, let's say you've got a trip coming up with your family and you're going to be in those four cities and you just wanted to choose one or two zoos, how would you characterize the Bronx compared to San Diego, compared to Omaha, compared to Seattle? Well, I, I think the San Diego Zoo is, is my favorite zoo. It's the best zoo in the, in the United States, perhaps in the world. It's very tropical. It's the only zoo in the United States that has the two favorite animals, the giant panda and the koala. Huh. They have the best animal collection in the country. And they've got a, a polar bear plunge. What's that all about? Polar bear plunge, underwater polar bears. 
uh, where the polar bears will, will leap into the water and then come crashing into the window right in front of you. It's wonderful. As I talked about underwater hippo viewing, they have two underwater hippo views of the regular river hippos and the pygmy hippos. You know, the giant pandas, they've, they've, they're always having baby giant pandas, which mm. is a real treat. They have these London double-decker buses that take you through tours throughout it. They have a high-flying sky ride that takes you over the zoo. There's just so much to it. And I understand that if, if you're interested in plants, there's sort of a botanical garden mixed in with the zoo, which is kind of unique to San Diego. You're right. I mean, like I said, it's it's very tropical. You you feel like you're in the tropics in the San Diego okay, Zoo. Okay, well, that's San Diego. What's so good about the Bronx? Because I see the Bronx coming up along with Omaha a lot on your different categories for best zoos in the country. Yes, yes. The Bronx Zoo, right smack in the middle of the Bronx, not far from Yankee Stadium. I think uh, many zoo lovers, uh, the, the real fanatics, uh, consider that the best zoo for exhibitry. Uh, in that they, they create these wonderful exhibits. They have a monorail that takes you around to see the Asian animals. They have an indoor jungle called Jungle World, which takes you in to see some of the Southeast Asian animals, some of the apes and things like that. So you'd say next time somebody's in the New York area, you'd, if you're at all interested in zoos, make a point to see the Bronx Zoo, huh? Yes, and you can take the subway right to it. It's a little bit north of Manhattan. Yeah, it's a great urban zoo. I've been to the Omaha Zoo, and it is really incredible. How does a nondescript town like Omaha get the resources together for a great zoo? I mean, isn't there a lot of money that makes something like the Omaha Zoo excel? You're right. I, I think it's the brainchild of, of their longtime director, Lee Simmons, who just decided, hey, I'm the director of this zoo. I'm going to turn this into a great zoo. And I think he's turned it into the second best zoo in the country, in my opinion. And it gets, it gets the support, right? So that people are enthusiastic it, about it. It really helps. does. It really does. And, and they have the... Uh, Probably the highest per capita attendance in the in the country, but it's because it's so good. They have this lead jungle, which is a, a full <laughs> acre indoor jungle, where they're showing you the plants and animals of three different continents. Some people might travel to Omaha just to see the zoo. I would recommend that. It's certainly the best thing to see between Chicago and <laughs> and California. It really is. Best Zoos in America with Alan Nihus in just a moment. And you can share your favorites with us. Just post your comments to the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Or by phone, we're at We'll examine Dutch culture from the inside out in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, Alan Nihus joins us from Indianapolis. He's the co-author of the guidebook, America's Best Zoos. Alan's website is americasbestzoos.com, and skip the apostrophe in that URL. And Alan, uh, I think everybody's proud of their local zoo, and probably like a lot of your readers, I went straight for Seattle. And you said it was really remarkable for its early innovations, and uh, it has almost as many exhibit awards as the Bronx. Tell me more about the Seattle Zoo, why, why it's well-respected as a big league zoo in, in our country. Right, Woodland Park Zoo right there in Seattle. Yeah. 
Uh, it's very similar to the Bronx Zoo in that it's, uh, it's a favorite for its exhibits. They were the first zoo to bring gorillas outside and put them on the grass in a very uh, lush, beautiful outdoor exhibit. And they've had a lot of success with breeding uh, baby gorillas. They have a wonderful uh, long elephant exhibit. I love their African savanna exhibit. They kind of raise the ground so that you can't see the back of it. And that mm-hmm. makes it look like it's much further. Yeah. So you're looking at zebras and giraffes and, and antelope, and they look like they're Going back, they have a little African uh, village with little huts that you come mm. in and you look out the windows at the African animals. Right. Uh, there's there's a lot to that Woodland Park Zoo. Peering out from under your umbrella, you almost feel you're in Africa. Right, or Alaska. <laughs> or Alaska, or Alaska. Yeah. Seattle's also got summer concerts in the zoo, and, I, and that's quite popular here in Seattle. Are zoos branching out to find clever ways to bring more people in with, with concerts or, or different shows? Yeah, most of them do. Christmas time, they have uh, most of the zoos have some kind of a wonderful Christmas at the zoo where they they decorate them with probably huh. the best lights in the whole city, and of course they bring Santa in and they have uh, other different special shows here at the Indianapolis Zoo. They they have special dolphin shows themed around Christmas, and uh, most zoos do that, and and that's very very popular at all the zoos. And you made a good point in your book about how a lot of us think I oh, will go to the zoo in the summer, but it's a year round activity, and don't underrate the opportunity to go to zoo in the off season. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Alan Nihus, and Alan's book is America's Best Zoos. And Alan has visited hundreds of them, and over the last, um, what, 15 years, he's been working on this project. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. David's on the line in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. David, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi, Rick. Hi, Alan. What's your thought on zoos, David? Well, I, I just recently had an opportunity to travel to the Phoenix area, and of course I live outside Philadelphia, and I'm actually a, a member of the zoo here in Philly, and I use the reciprocity that they have as part of the membership to visit the Phoenix Zoo, and I was very impressed, and actually just listening to you speak on the program, you know, about the new technology and some of the new ways to display the the animals, I, I certainly found that there, and uh I, it got me to thinking that, you know, you take a, a zoo, an urban zoo, and I, I'm wondering what the future is for them in terms of maybe not being able to exhibit the animals the same way in kind of an open, expansive environment where they have multiple species in one exhibit. And, and, and to your point, it actually looks like you're on an African savanna. Uh, how can, yes. you know, urban zoos trying to do that same thing just seems to be an, an awful challenge because of the landlocked nature and the value of the real estate. Yeah, the Phoenix Zoo is, is a wonderful zoo. Um, a couple things stand out to me. They have something called Monkey Village. Did you do that? Yes, I did. Yes. I mean, you go into this, uh, enclosed area and they have these cute little spider monkeys that are just all around you. They literally can climb on you if, if they want to. They also have uh, what I was talking to Rick about, taking you to another environment. They have the Forest of Yuko, which is a, a South American village. Mm-hmm. And they have great South American animals all around you. But they also make you feel like you've gone to Colombia or Peru or something. Exactly. You know, San Diego's got uh, the luxury of having its wild animal park uh, 30 miles north of San Diego, right? Uh, right. right Alan? And, and that's like you feel like you're, well, you are out in the wilds. Oh, you feel like you're in Africa. Yeah. Uh, right. It's It's wonderful. And they even have a... A hot air balloon ride. They take you up about 150 feet. You can mm-hmm. look over the whole thing. It's a little bit expensive, but mm-hmm. it's it's worth it to me. The elephant right. overlook sounded incredible there. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to diminish our, our zoo here in Philadelphia because it's an excellent one. But, uh, you know, I mean, that was the one thing that I kind of walked away from that is just the... You know, just having the uh, availability of that real estate to basically kind of develop some of these exhibits that, you know, it just seems to me that an urban zoo, would it would be an impossibility to do that. Well, you're right. And eastern zoos and western zoos, one of the big differences is that the eastern zoos, like Philadelphia, is the America's first zoo. Hmm. And so they build a lot of things into uh, historic buildings. Uh, the Bronx Zoo does that too, and it's it's really kind of interesting to see that too. That's one thing I've seen a lot in Europe when I go see zoos. Yeah, an interesting architecture. David, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Right thank you. Now. Happy zoo Bye. going. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. And uh, Lisa's on the line in Columbia, South Carolina. Lisa, thanks for your call. Hi. How are you? Um, I know. Hi, Lisa. Little things that 
listening to what you were saying. Hi, Alan. Um, everybody's proud of their local zoo. And I live in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm not native from here, but I've raised my children here. And it is not a big city. It's, you know, less than half a million. But I've been to some bigger city zoos, and I have to say that um, if people are traveling through South Carolina to get to Myrtle Beach or to get to Hilton Head, they should consider stopping in Columbia and going to the zoo, especially if they have children because it's a wonderful family zoo. Um, it's not so huge yes. that you can't get through it in an afternoon, and it doesn't have the long lines that the big zoos have. You know, I've been to, I've tried to see the panda in Atlanta and see the panda in Washington, D.C., and they had limited times. It was open, and the lines were so long, and, you know, a family outing with your children is not very fun when you're standing in a long line. So, <laughs> right. Um, I've just felt like, you know, the Columbia, South Carolina Riverbank Zoo is so nice because it's very open. It's not huge, but it feels big when you're walking through it. It sort of has a circular path through the zoo, and it still has some very interesting animals like the koalas and penguins and, of course, you know, have the usual giraffes and elephants and that sort of thing as well. But I really like the presentation. Well, Lisa's right. Uh, she just told you all the things I was about to tell you about the Riverbank Zoo. But it's it's one of these uh, hidden gems that, that we talk about, along with Omaha and the zoo down in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and a few others. But she's right. I mean, you won't see pandas at, at the Riverbank Zoo, but you'll see koalas. Huh. So it, it's a beautiful zoo. All right. Lisa, thank you. We'll check that out next time when we're in your neighborhood. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye now. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. So what kind of animals are most sleepy and where are you most likely to see animals just jumping around and really entertaining? Most sleepy would definitely be the big cats, the lions, the tigers. Uh, jumping all around uh, the, the primates, the monkeys. So if you've got kids and they want action, go to the apes and the monkeys. Yes. What if you've got kids that really want to uh, pet an animal? What, what, uh, what comes to your mind as the best place for up close and personal with the animals? Uh, children's zoos. Go to the children's zoos. They, most zoos have a wonderful little goat and sheep petting yard, and okay. they have a place to wash their hands and everything after that. What do uh, zoos cost to get in? What's the average admission? Uh, we've figured this out many times. It's right around eight, nine, ten dollars. So compared to theme for parks adults. and so on, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a budget family activity compared to yes, we parks. figured that out. That that for family of four to go to a big theme park is like uh, two hundred fifty dollars for. A great zoo, it's about $60. You could take the family, parking. you could take the family to the zoo and have lots of money for, for junk food and souvenirs and stuff. Do, do zoos actually go out of business? There is a zoo down in Florida that did go out of business, uh, last year, but not very often. Where's your favorite butterfly house? Cause I, I love those. In Europe, they're just great. The butterfly houses are just trippy. You are absolutely right. And I, even at some of the zoos in Europe, yeah. they're, they're oh, great yeah. butterfly houses. Go to Europe for butterfly houses. Bronx Zoo. Huh? Bronx Zoo probably okay. has. That's good. Okay. A highlight for me on my trip to Costa Rica was insects at night. Is there any place that comes to mind in America where you can see insects at night? There's a great insect house in the Cincinnati Zoo in Cincinnati, Ohio, but yeah. I don't remember any at night type thing. But for insects, you like Cincinnati. Yes. Best insect house in the country. Alan Nihus, author of America's Best Zoos. Um, you've had a lot of experience with your kids. I would imagine your kids were about your best research assistants. What's your favorite memory for taking your, your kids to the zoo? When I went to the Pittsburgh Zoo, they were opening up their new children's zoo, and they let uh, me bring my daughter, who was very cute and about nine years old, and they let me bring her in and help her. She helped feed the sea lions, and so some of those memories like that. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that the Pittsburgh Zoo was your favorite children's zoo. It still is, yes. Yeah. All right. You know, it occurs to me you can travel all over the world when it comes to exploring the animal kingdom, never leave the United States, thanks to the hard work done by uh, the people behind America's Best Zoos. Alan Nihus, author of America's Best Zoos, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Rick. Let's shift our focus now to Europe. We'll focus on one particular country that prides itself on being worldly, efficient, and tolerant. And that would be the Netherlands. 
vreemdelingenhart. Het woord alleen al moet ons met rode weerzin vervullen. A lot of people think they know the Netherlands and Dutch culture, but really what we know is a lot of clichés, you know, wooden shoes and tulips and that sort of thing. And yeah, wooden shoes and tulips are part of the Netherlands, but there's so much more. We're joined by Elizabeth Van Hest and Hans de Kiefte, two Dutch friends and tour guides, and we're going to talk about Dutch culture and weaving Dutch culture into our sightseeing. Elizabeth and Hans, thanks for joining us. Thank you for being here. Now, uh... Really, I've traveled all over Europe, and the Dutch people have a unique character. What is it, and why? Well, as far as I can speak for myself, I think I was taught by my parents to look abroad, to look at other people. Um, I was taught, for instance, that my education wasn't completed until I had spent one year in another country and learned other languages. And that's nothing new. The Dutch have been sort of a springboard for European exploration yes. for centuries. Well, you see, yes, you see it in the past. Go to Australia, yeah. go to Sri Lanka. They were everywhere. That's right. And, uh, a little tiny country having yeah. quite an impact on the globe. Yes. So good advice from your parents, and that sounds pretty typically for the Dutch character. Yes. Be broad-minded. Hans? Well, basically, we're a very small country, and we live in between Germany, France, and uh, England. So we're very small, and those people don't are not going to learn Dutch. So we'll have to learn it. So and you've got to have the languages. Yes, mm-hmm. and if you drive uh, two hours to the east, you're in Germany. And if you drive two hours to the south, you're in the French-speaking part of Belgium or France. And so, if you sail two hours to the west, yeah, then you you'll drown. be speaking my language. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then you drown. So you have to learn your languages. You have to learn your languages. I think the Dutch probably know more languages per capita than most people. Well, it is changing, I think. Mm-hmm. Many people in other countries are learning other languages. But, but a long time ago, are, this was yes. nothing new in the Netherlands. Yes, the Netherlands. I think so, yeah. In fact, now I noticed when you go to Schiphol Airport, Amsterdam's mm-hmm. airport, mm-hmm. most of the signs are actually in English. You don't even need the Dutch language. Oh, yeah, or with symbols. By the way, it's Schiphol Airport. Uh, but that's unpronounceable. You know. Schiphol. This is a I mean, funny. This Dutch language is yeah. one of the most um, Awkward, yes. challenging yeah. languages. Barbarian. <laughs> I, I introduced you, Elizabeth, as Elizabeth. That's your um, English name, I suppose. It's one of my names, but in the Netherlands, as we are a small country, you have many names. You see, <laughs> so I have several names, and my ordinary name in in the Netherlands is Guusje. It's um, diminutive of Augusta. Ah. And uh, unfortunately for me, as a child, Guus is also a boy's name, so you can imagine oh, what so it is to a, be yeah. a girl and have a so boy's like name. like a boy named Sue and but, a girl named Huchte. Sorry, see, It's a bit like Gus, you see? Like Gus, okay. Yeah. One more time. Huchte. Huchte. And you, because everything is small. Oh, small. How you know Little. a cop is a kopje. Really? So we you, always make everything small. So you don't just say, uh, give me a cup. You say, give me one of those cute little, little tiny cups. Yeah. Well, that's the gazellig culture. Gezellig. Now, gazellig, what does gezellig. that mean? Gazellig. You cannot translate it. But it is this... But it is cozy. 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 Yeah. Hans, when you think of Dutch culture and cozy, what what does that mean? Well, it's it's warm, I would say. Warm. Warm. What is the word again? Uh, gezellig. And that's... Uh, Characteristic. You go to a small town and you stay in a little uh, bed and breakfast and you will have a, a cozy experience, mm-hmm. a Dutch experience. Well, the winters help, you know. Mm-hmm. It's dark outside, the lights are inside, the fire is on, and you, you're together, you know, having a good time, and then we call it gezellig. Hans, how do you see the Dutch character? There's a stereotype of Dutch character and then you're a Dutchman. What is the Dutch character? Well, I like to distinguish a little bit. We have Holland and the Netherlands. Okay. Holland is the western part of the Netherlands. And this is the part where the ships left from in the old days where the trade was going on. And it's a very open-minded, open-spirited, live-and-let-live society. But in the east of the country, the feudal system uh, existed much longer, was close to Germany, and there's a different mentality there. So usually when people think about the Netherlands, they think about Holland. Holland, and that's the tolerant, live-and-let-live spirit. Yes, very open. Rough-and-tumble sailors and very commercial. Commercial too, yes. So good traders, good businessmen. Anybody is a potential customer, so you don't want to you don't want to condemn them for their mm. lifestyle if you can live together in mm. tolerance. Yeah, typically in Holland, uh, there are good schools which teach businessmen how to act or how to behave in other countries. So when you meet a Dutchman in Saudi Arabia, he's already prepared how to get along with people there, how to do. So do that's their part of Dutch business training is oh, how yes. to get along with other people. Of course, yeah. 
And you've got centuries of uh, practice with this. They even tell you how to get along with Americans. Is that right? Mm, of course. What's what's the challenge there? Oh, well, <laughs> this is a tricky question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what's the challenge? for If I'm an American well, business, what do you have to be careful? I have to tell you this first. Uh, I think the Dutch culture, maybe in Europe, is the closest to the American culture. We're known to be blunt and open and direct, and uh, in America that doesn't cause many problems. So. Ah, yeah, because you are more straightforward and frank, almost without tact. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Not you. I'm talking about Dutch people in general. Okay, well, thank you very much. <laughs> but is that a characteristic of yes. the Dutch people, Elizabeth? Yes, and uh, I would say uh, simple. I mean, simple in a way, easygoing. No problem. Compared to To other countries. countries. The further you go to the south, more complicated the people get in a certain way. Because if you know them, you know it's it's also a way of acting. But to give you an example, you see, it's also very common just to jump in and have a tea together or a beer and then you go away. It's not with an invitation. Okay, so that's a more of a informality that yes. Americans are comfortable with. Yes. So maybe the Dutch, as, as Hans said, the Dutch and the Americans are closer in that oh, regard than so. perhaps the Germans or the French. Oh, yes, I think so. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Dutch culture with Elizabeth Van Hest and Hans de Kiefta. Your country is famous for being well-organized. It must be the most densely populated part of Europe, and in some ways it feels like you almost live in a jukebox. Mm-hmm. Well, we live in a jukebox. We call them dikes. That's right. You live in mm-hmm. dikes. You you live, uh, and we have to be organized. I mean, if you, let's say I'm, I'm living in Spain in the winter, you can make a mistake there. If it's, if you, if your roof leaks or whatever, you will survive the winter. Now in Holland, if your dike is not built properly, you die, you drown, certainly in winter. So the stakes are high. You better be organized. You better be good. No room for error, uh, with the dikes concerns. I am a funny little Dutch girl, as funny as funny can be. And all the boys around my house sing pretty little songs to me. My fellow's name is Jello. He comes from Alabama with a big fat nose and a pickle on his toes and a E-I-E-I-O. My name is Elisabeth Van Est and I'm from the Netherlands. And I'm going to mention one of our tongue twisters. It says, Moeder snijdt zeefscheefsnede brood. That means... Mother cuts seven crooked slices of bread. Moeder snijdt zeven scheven sneden brood. There's more with Hans and Elizabeth in just a moment as we examine Dutch society from the inside out on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Van Hest and I was born in the Netherlands and I'm going to teach you a tongue twister, what we use in the Netherlands. So, Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. That means, Lotje, a girl, taught liesje, another girl, to walk along the lane of linden trees. A long lane of linden trees. So that makes, Lotje leerde liesje lopen langs de lange lindelaan. We're looking at Dutch society right now on Travel with Rick Steves and gaining a better understanding of how it works. More than 16 million people live in the Netherlands, most of them packed neatly together in cities, and many of them below sea level. Our guests, giving us an insider's perspective on their culture, are two Dutch-born tour guides, Hans de Kefte and Elizabeth van Hest. Phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Rick's on the line in Kent, Washington. Rick, thanks for the call. Well, thank you very much, Rick, and goedemiddag. 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 Hey, Rick speaks pretty good Dutch there. Oh, it's yes, impressive. impressive. <laughs> nee, nee. Nee, nee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rick, what did the Dutch people think when you traveled around their country speaking their language? Uh, they're astounded yes. uh, that Americans can even attempt Dutch. And they, uh, they're also astounded when uh, we disclose we're staying longer than one week, if that happens to be the case. I don't know too many Americans that spend more than a week in the Netherlands. That's yeah. a good way to gain the respect and the appreciation of the locals, I would think. Uh, I, I would think so, too. And it amplifies a, a point that you've made before, Rick, that uh, Americans get shortchanged uh, for vacations. We have the shortest 
vacations of anyone in the, in the industrialized world, it seems. It's a horrible thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very much so. So, Rick, how did you spend so much time in the Netherlands? What were highlights for you, and how did you travel? Oh, well, um, my dad was a uh, first officer for Pan American, so we used to uh, travel quite a lot, my family. Okay. And when I was in school, I studied the golden age of Dutch history, the 17th century mainly, and uh, it enhanced my appreciation of the Netherlands when I visited as a college student in 1981. And now, as a consenting adult and a social democrat, I revere the Netherlands as quite possibly the most liberal nation on the planet, and therefore I regard speaking Dutch as the language of freedom in a way. Whoa, that's quite a strong mm-hmm. statement. I think it's borne out by the, um, the way the politics have gone over the last few decades. Why do you think the Dutch are so, so progressive or liberal? Um, because... Uh, they've had to be so resourceful, uh, and I think the key to that is the spirit of cooperation and tolerance that they've cultivated. As, as I believe I heard earlier in the broadcast, everyone in Holland ha- had to pitch in to keep the land from flooding, and people cared less about what others thought so much as what others in fact did. And then uh, Dutch philosophers... Uh, such as Erasmus, began extolling the virtues of the whole country staying warm and dry and fed and cooperative and tolerant. And you add all these up, and you've got the state of mind that um, I know you guys have been discussing as Gesellekeit. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a state of mind, and it's it's interesting how it does go back to, I think, the uh, density of the population, the fact that there is a big variety of people. It was a haven for people uh, fleeing religious persecution for a long time. Mm-hmm. You needed a lot of manpower to fill those ships and power that trade. And then, of course, you got to be on the ball to keep the sea at bay. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Ironically, it was a stereotype that first drew me to appreciate Dutch culture that comes out of the physical facts of the Netherlands. My late mother owned a Delftware vase with a picture of a windmill on it. Mm. And growing up in California, our grocery stores, which carried Van de Kamp's Dutch bakery items like um, windmill-shaped ginger cookies, usually advertised uh, this fact by sporting a blue neon windmill on the outside of the stores. So as a child, I learned to appreciate pretty vases and, and yummy cookies with the mysterious windmill people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the windmill people. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and later on in school, uh, I learned that the stereotypical windmills and the wooden shoes and the tulips all had to do with living in river deltas and windswept marshes and reclaimed land from the sea. And so these stereotypes reflect the resourcefulness of the Dutch over the centuries and then to top it all off, I learned that the Dutch had virtually invented the cookie, and that's all. <laughs> so and you get a cookie you with your culture like that. You know what I love about the Netherlands? When you order a cup of coffee, you get a beautiful little cookie. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not yes. a cookie; it's a speculatie of a biscuitje. <laughs> say that again. Biscuitje. A biscuit. That's a biscuit. A biscuit. <laughs> or a speculatie. It's such a delightful tradition. Or a cookie. Uh, I was wondering if the expatriate Afrikaner community in the Netherlands uh, is politically active, and if so, uh, do they tend toward the right or the left or, or both? Well, I happen to know somebody who, uh, who moved in from South Africa, but I don't think they're very active. They're assimilating very quickly, and uh, they become part of the Dutch society before you know it. So, so these are Dutch people who went down to South Africa, yeah, and then those who didn't like what happened politically moved back to the yeah. old country. Uh, I have friends myself who moved to South Africa, and they came back about 20 years ago. And when they come back, are they just happy to be home then? Well, they have to adjust, you know, the climate yeah. and the, the lifestyle, etc., but I mean, they but they're, not gonna, they're not going to shake a lot of. Uh, no, I have another friend. He has a. He's born in Netherlands, but when he was one, he moved to South Africa. Mm-hmm. He married there to an African, uh, South African lady, and they came back. And well, I mean, they speak fluent Dutch in a week. Really? So they really assimilate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Rick. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much for taking it. You bet. Happy travels. And uh, tot ziens. Tot ziens. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Dutch culture with two Dutch friends of mine, Hans de Kiefte and Elizabeth van Hest. When you think that the Netherlands are so small and so densely populated 
and most of the land is reclaimed from the sea, there really is a love of the land, an appreciation of the land that is almost inspirational when you travel around the Netherlands. Yes, it's in the history. When you think I was born below the level of the sea, when you tell that to other people, they get scared. That's why my parents taught me very quickly to swim. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's always in, in the whole history of, of the Netherlands, a very important point, this care for land. And you know now, while the uh, water gets higher and higher, the level, some people had already to leave their land because they have to flood it. Is that right? Yes. So the climate change and the yes. rising sea level is yes. actually having an impact built, on life in Holland. Yes, they built special houses uh, on the water so that when the water raises, the house comes with it, like on a boat. Yes, but this is on the river side. Mm. Uh, for the sea, um, the Dutch have measured the level of the sea for right. centuries already. Right. And it is rising, but at a very moderate rate, and there's not an acceleration yet. Okay. The Delta Plan, which is a plan not only for the south, which is known for the big dikes, but encompasses all of the Netherlands, is finished in the beginning of last year. And they have a new uh, plan now, a new committee out, and they're going to review the whole plan again to make it ready for the future. And they're first going to address the weaker points, uh, weaker in brackets, and um, this might take another... So tell me, you've got, of course, the dikes that hold out the sea, mm -hmm. but a good part of the Netherlands is the delta of the what, the Rhine River as yeah, it comes into... the Rhine River, the Maas River. I mean, this is a lot of water coming in. And this is a huge delta area, and that has to be cared for also. Also, yes. So it, it's a threat from two sides. What are the challenges there about the delta? Well, first, the river, um, they broadened the riverbeds. I mean, the riverbeds were getting too small and the dikes too high. And, uh, you know, the weather changes we had lately are also in Europe. And so they broadened the river and made parts which they could flood. Floods are used in a way to avoid serious problems. Um, they give the river more room. So, so you can rises, intentionally let it overflow. And then the other measure is that uh, there are some polders where they bought out uh, farmers. Polders meaning land reclaimed from the sea, below sea level farmland. Mm, polder is in general an area between dikes mm -hmm. which has to be pumped dry when it rains. It can be reclaimed from the sea or from the river. Okay. Now, upstream, so near Germany, they have a few big polders. They've bought out the farmers. They put them on higher ground. And when needed, they flood that polder. Wow. So in a in advanced move, anticipating mm -hmm. challenges, yeah. the Dutch government has bought out farmers in lowlands so mm -hmm. they can flood that land yeah. when necessary. Yeah. And they will compensate the farmers. The cows can be get out in mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, but if the grain is flooded or whatever, they will be compensated. And it's much yeah. cheaper than flooding Rotterdam, for instance. Oh, yeah. Something's got to give somewhere. Yeah, and yeah. Dutch are pragmatic. Dutch are so well organized. You've got it figured out. Generally, in the Netherlands, Hans, what's the take on, on climate change? If you believe in it or don't believe in it, you better be prepared. So, so the Dutch are just not going to gamble. Like I said, the sea level is rising. That's measured already. And how quick or how fast it goes, we don't know. So we better start preparing for if it rises, because if we start building dikes, this takes years to, to raise dikes. Yeah. You cannot do it just in a year. So you have to think ahead and you have to prepare yourself. How ahead. do you pay for that? We pay in taxes. It's not that much. Uh, I, me and my wife, we pay about 140 euro a year. This includes keeping our, uh, to keep the water clean okay. behind the dikes and to raise the dikes. So, so this all the Dutch pay about 200 dollars a year for this uh, uh, utility. Yeah, about 110 per person max. And it's very cheap, but how can it be this cheap? We don't do it in one year. Slowly, slowly we prepare and we build for the future. We don't repair a disaster, which is very expensive. I mean, we've right. seen Louisiana here. Yeah. When the Dutch people looked at Katrina in New Orleans, what did you think? Well, I bet I there, know. There was a Dutch committee there a few years before that, and they warned, and they told them exactly where the water would come from. Well, by the Wait way, a minute. There was a Dutch committee that went to New Orleans and said exactly where yeah, the, the dikes would be before it happened, yes. And what was the response to the people in Louisiana? Well, it's just too expensive to fix it. But even too now, expensive to fix it. Even now, it's too expensive to fix it. Um, another committee went after disaster, and they proposed um, certain measures. And um, they thought it was too expensive. They wanted to build something which would protect New Orleans for at least a thousand years. Well, they couldn't do that. They said 500 years. And the Army Corps came with plans which were much, much lower. Now, you have to think in the Netherlands, the cows are protected for an event 1,200 years. And the cities are protected for an event which could occur once in 10,000 years. 
what can the world learn from the Dutch experience? Well, you have to be careful uh, with what you do with nature. Uh, we, we have an oil reserves and gas reserves which were formed in millions and millions of years, and we're burning it in just a few decades. And this is always risky because you, you take steps which are completely against nature. So it's dangerous to try to control nature, and if you do, you should do it. Yeah, we have to carefully. live with nature. Yeah. But you guys, speaking uh, in this sustainable way, you're the best business people on the planet. The odd thing is that the Dutch spend a lot of money to keep their feet dry. But on the other side, we, we are, I mean, we're working all over the world making dikes and helping honest to do the same. So we also make money out of it. Dutch engineers have helped keep much of the world dry. Yes. Elizabeth, when you're thinking about the Netherlands, people always think about flowers. How are flowers a part of your life in the Netherlands? Oh, I was born in the middle of the tulip fields. Mm. So even now, I cannot live without flowers in my house. It's a beautiful thing. When I go to a little town in Holland, I just I always see people with bicycles and there's flowers yes. in the basket in the front yes. of their bike. They're just every day they'll go home with some new flowers. Oh, not every day. Not every day. day no, on the market, you, you see, go to you the go market. to the market, you buy your cheese and other things, and you buy also uh, a bunch of flowers. I once went to the market and bought some flowers and put it in my cheap little hotel room. Yeah. It made uh, a wonderful difference. Change, yes. Yeah, very nice. Hans, we're talking about the Netherlands, Polderland, and all this struggle with the sea. It's a land with canals. Canals are part of the culture. Give us a memory from your childhood with the canals of Holland. Well, I used to swim in canal. Used to swim. Don't do that anymore, by the way. But um, I'm born in Rotterdam, raised in Rotterdam, and uh, lived in a new settlement or suburb, you could say. And I walked straight out of my suburb in five minutes, and I was in the countryside. And the kids would get together and swim in the canal? Yes, and we would jump them. Jump them? Yes. I have an image of, of kids with sticks vaulting over canals. Does that ever happen? Mm, that happens more in the north, in Friesland. In the north? Yeah. But we try to jump them. Sometimes you miss. And <laughs> Go home all wet. a lot of fun. You come <laughs> home muddy. What about skating? Yes. Did you ever skate on the canals? Oh, yes, skating. That's the uh, nicest thing to do on earth, maybe. Really? Well, That's quite really, a statement. Really, yes. So what's so beautiful about skating on the canals? I'll tell you. Take me there. The canals freeze. Farmers check the thickness of the ice and give a certain loop free. The loop might be 5 kilometers up to 210 kilometers. So when you skate, you skate through the countryside, away from all the cars. Ideal is the sun in your front and the wind in your back. You approach the town, and you enter under a bridge, and then that's where you might hear the first car. You step out of the canal. There's a mat which leads to a cafe. There you have a pea soup, Dutch pea soup, Etten soup, and in Geneva to warm you up. And people from all jobs come there from all ways of life, and doctors, lawyers, farmers, you name it. And everybody seems to be equal at that moment. And if you go skating, somebody's in trouble, they help you. And I think it beats skiing, personally. You have to move on your own strength. You don't just go down a mountain. And So you've got the sun on your face. You've got the wind at your back. Yes. You've got the dreams of stepping into a beautiful little gazellig pub you where go, you'll have your pea soup yeah. and your fire water. And you're approaching with about 30 kilometers an hour. Whoa. And is there is there a rhythm as you skate? The rhythm is beautiful. You have to learn it. It takes a few years to get it properly, but it feels so perfect. And when I skated, like twice a week, I was never cold in winter because you have this movement outside. You mean you never felt cold? Or you, you never, never felt cold. You didn't get a cold. Now, that's a, that's a beautiful warmth, and that's something that uh, not many people have enjoyed. And huh? you mostly skate nearly barefoot in your skates. In and other words, you don't get cold. You don't get cold. No. And then you step in and you get very warm with your Dutch pea soup. Yes. Hans de Kiefte, Elizabeth Van Hest, thanks a lot for sharing an insight into your beautiful culture. Thank you. Don't thank, thank you for having us. Thank you.
of our traveling listeners get inspired and send us haiku poems that they've written about the impressions they've gathered from their travels. Here are some examples we thought you'd enjoy that include observations about the Netherlands. Emily Epstein from Portland, Oregon, sent us two haiku from her visit to Amsterdam. Bicycles race by, hurrying from place to place. Are there any rules? Red lights reflecting in the mirror-like canal. I think I smell weed. And Neil Ruddy from Carlisle, Iowa, sent us a batch he wrote from a trip to Europe. Here's a few. Amsterdam cycle. Moms, babies in their baskets, cell phones in their ears. Alps to Savona. By car, uphill floored. Downhill, hang on for dear life. Three euro Dutch joints or 15 euro French drinks. Results are the same. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WFYI in Indianapolis for their help with today's show and to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading today's travel haiku. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find many interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss, plus Rick's European walking tours. They're available to download your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.